You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany Sermon Series, Prison Poems, Citizens of Joy in Circumstance of Suffering. In this series from Paul's letter to the Philippians, we learn how to press into the source of true joy, citizenship in heaven through our union with Christ. So let's hear God's word. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you and I long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive from my work. Now I appeal to Euodia and Syntyche, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you have learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you. It's good to be with you. My name is Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here uh, I've come to enjoy the 11 o'clock service the last few weeks as we've kind of resumed in-person gatherings. It feels kind of like family church, so it's good to be with y'all. This is about six times as many people as are normally here at the 11 o'clock service, so maybe it feels less family service to you, but hey, we're here. I like it. Uh, family announcement, real quick. Derek Schaefer, 21. Is it true? 21 years old. Unbelievable. You did it. You made it. You've been here since you were in diapers got baptized here. Uh, we're all expecting a responsible 21st birthday out of you. Do the family proud, but we're, let the reader understand. We're thankful for you. Happy birthday, man. We love you. We're grateful for you. 21. It's crazy. I ain't ready for that. Y'all kids about to go to high school before, you know, blink, and then we'll be sending them. Sorry. It's happening too fast. Uh, regardless, uh, been on quarantine for a while. I don't know how y'all are handling it or what you're doing with it. We're kind of keeping to ourselves at the Sage House. Sundays are exciting and terrifying for me at the same time, you know, trying to just figure it out, want to be together, nervous about being around each other. So I don't know how y'all are handling it. Uh, We've been watching a lot of movies at our house. Uh, Last two days, we watched uh, the new Willy Wonka with our kids and the old Willy Wonka. Uh, I don't know. Actually, we watched Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and then we watched Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. I don't know whose performance you for. I'm a, I'm a Gene Wilder man, personally, I think, after all. Johnny Depp, it was just too close to creepy for me. It's a little creepy. Um, 
But regardless, a uh, movie that we watched uh, a couple of weeks ago, new Tom Hanks movie, Greyhound. Anybody, nobody had even heard of it in the last service. Uh, so for the uninitiated, Tom Hanks called me that. He's like, man, you got to watch my new movie. I was like, I oh, don't know, Tom, I'm so busy. And he was like, no, please, as a favor to me. And I was like, fine, Tom, I'll watch your movie. And so we watched this movie, Greyhound, which Tom Hanks plays a Navy captain piloting a destroyer in World War II. He's leading a convoy of 40 ships that has food, supplies, troops, and he and a couple of other destroyers, he's in charge of the destroyer group that's in charge of the convoy, and it's a movie about them making an Atlantic crossing in the wintertime uh, to support the war effort. If you don't know anything about what this meant, uh, let, me, let me try to paint a picture for you. Uh, so first, they're going through the North Atlantic, which means everything is cold and frozen all of the time. There's a couple of destroyers and a convoy that's stretched out over miles. You know, these are gigantic ships, and they get to go a certain ways into the Atlantic from the United States, and they've got air cover, and that keeps them safe. Planes can see the submarines and drop bombs right on the submarines. And then there's this no-man land of time, a few days of travel, where planes can't refuel back then. And so they were just kind of left to their own, and it's up to the destroyers to defend against these German U-boats. And if you don't know what a U-boat is or what a submarine is, it's a boat that's underwater. And so imagine being in frozen lakes or frozen winds on this huge ocean with multiple enemy boats underwater in the middle of the night trying to shoot your ships. And their defense, and this blows my mind, the defense we had during World War II against U-boats was basically throwing big barrels of explosive in the water, hoping that it would hit one of these boats underwater. And so the movie is about this four or six, seven day journey across the Atlantic where Tom Hanks is trying to keep these boats safe. Uh, if you're into dialogue, I don't know if the movie is good or not, but it went really fast and I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. If you're into dialogue, this movie probably isn't for you because, again, he's on a Navy boat. There's no time for dialogue. The, the dialogue consists mostly of one to three sentence command or one to three word commands. So it's like evasive maneuvers or torpedo, left full rudder. That's because if you can imagine in the anxiety of this scenario, there's no time to be like, what do you guys think we should do? What do you, how do you feel about this? And it's all right now, decisive, quick action. Uh, I'm not necessarily a huge World War II buff. I'm generally against anxiety. I've been dealing with anxiety for a long time. I don't enjoy it. Uh, it was a stressful, anxious movie about a stressful, anxious time. That's not what I loved about the movie. What I loved about it was Tom Hanks' performance as this captain. He's calm and direct. It's very unsettling to watch. Uh, he clearly feels the gravity of the situation. You can tell that this is a man carrying deep burdens and responsibilities. And yet he never seems too high or too low. Um, I don't think these are spoilers. Uh, he doesn't sleep for four days, barely eats. He won't leave the bridge. Uh, at, at one point, he's been on his feet for so long, his, his feet are just bleeding, and he's not complaining about it. Uh, one of his other shipmates points out, Captain, your feet are bleeding. And he looks to, you know, a lower-ranked, I don't know what you call them, the, the go-abouts on a Navy ship, and he says, hey, go get my slippers. And that's, can you imagine standing and walking for so long that your feet are just bleeding? And Hanks' response is, get my slippers. Left full rudder, right ahead full, whatever, all that, and he just gets right back to it. 
it's, it's almost as if he's simply there. He's leading, directing, calm, and yet assertive. And after, after watching that, I've been wrestling with it for oh, probably 10 days now. And I realized, like, watching Tom Hanks, the reason that that stirred me so much is I want to be like that. Whatever he's got going on that makes him that way, I want that. That kind of stability. I'm a relatively unstable person. I get real high and I get real low. And I never know when it's going to come. I'm a, quite the emotional person. And seeing the steadiness of Hanks, of that character, uh, I want that. And it's, it's made me... It's been such a clear picture for me of the kind of joy that we've been talking about throughout our series on the book of Philippians. Prison poems, citizens of joy and circumstances of suffering. So from the beginning, we've defined joy as this way. What is joy in the Bible? It's delight in the beauty of God that produces patient hope. So one of the themes that runs throughout Greyhound is when they get to a certain point in the Atlantic, they know that English ships will be able to offer them air cover. There's this no man's land between when air cover from the United States can keep them safe and then when air cover from the United Kingdom will be able to keep them safe. And throughout, they have this clock that's ticking, how much longer till air cover. And there's this steadiness as they hope. There's something that they see, that they want, and it leads them, it, it guides them there. In, in Greyhound, these, these massive ships were able to navigate those treacherous waters because of how the ships were constructed. It wasn't smooth sailing. Huge swells, icy North Atlantic winds, but they had thick hulls, they had deep ballast, they had powerful engines, they had big, strong rudders that could guide them through these waters. So the ships were constructed well, and then they had a stable captain. A stable construction plus a stable captain resulted in stable living. And I think what the scriptures teach us is that joy that joy that we've been talking about for weeks and weeks and weeks now, joy is the great stabilizer of the Christian life. In, in turbulent waters, like we're all facing, anybody been stressed out once in the last six months? Anybody? Mild, yeah, well, oh, we can raise our hands now, okay. All right, church. I see that hand, Logan. You look like you've been lifting. Way to go, buddy. You look thick. Nice, I mean, thick, like actual thick, not like how the kids are saying thick. You know what I mean? I didn't mean it like that. Way to go, buddy. Glad to see that big, powerful arm raised. Like, you know, we, we get caught thinking that in all of this chaos and uncertainty, if only things would be different, if the vaccine would come, if we would get another dose of PPE funds, or, what, you know, if, if these circumstances would change, then we would find that stability again. In turbulent waters like we're facing, we need... We need Strong, deep rudders. We need powerful engines. We need thick hulls. And the lesson for us today is if you want stability amidst your chaos, we have to learn how to apply the principles of joy to the little places in our lives, the small, ordinary, everyday places of our lives. And so uh, let me show you what I'm talking about. So in verse 1, we get this big word. First word of the first verse of the fourth chapter. Therefore, therefore, Philippians 4.1. Now, what that therefore is doing, it's connecting everything that's coming here in Philippians 4 to the big truth statements that came, we looked at this last week, from Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. And in essence, here's the big truth that Paul's been arguing throughout Philippians. First, you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. 
That's where your citizenship lies. That's the truest thing about you. You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and you will be raised on the last day. You will be made perfect. You will be made whole when Christ returns and brings everyone back from the dead, which that's like, that's truth to build your life on. That's the biggest truth there is. All will be well. You belong somewhere that is eternal, and you'll be raised and made perfect. And so this therefore that was up there is saying, now in light of this big truth, so what? What do we do in light of this big truth? And I just, I'm so tickled by the Bible sometimes. It's so unexpected to me. I'm tempted to think that the big truth need to go to the big places. The big buckets are what's important. The big issues of the day, the big cause. And watch the first place Paul makes the connection here of what it means to be a citizen of heaven and knowing you will be made perfect. Verses two through three. This is fantastic to me. Now I appeal to you, you Euodians, Syntyche, however you say that, please, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling the others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Why is this so funny to me? What's so curious about this? He's like, okay, here's your big cosmic truth, the most important thing of all time, the biggest truth there could be, cosmic divine revelation. So what? So stop fighting with your sister in the church. The first place he applies it is into a relationship between two friends in a church. If y'all, we don't need to raise hands on this. Some of y'all have been to church for a minute. Y'all ever know buddy, about people fighting in the church? You ever found two ladies in a church fighting? You ever heard stories about two ladies building different coalitions and it ends up splitting the church? I'm not blaming that on ladies here. I'm just saying people fight in the church. The first place Paul brings this to bear, the biggest of truths applied to the littlest of places in the littlest of lives. All we know about these two ladies is that they fought over something. Two sisters arguing in Christ. And look closely here. Bring it back up, Connor. Bam! There it is. Notice that he doesn't say, uh, I ask you. Oh, go to the one. Is there one? Yeah, this is. No, go to the one before. Is there one before? Yeah, 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 yeah. Settle your disagreement. Notice he doesn't say, please, because you belong to the Lord, agree with each other. He doesn't say, get on the same page on this issue. Some translations will put it, agree in the Lord, which is saying, decide to agree about what's most true, about the big thing. He doesn't ask them to get on the same page about whatever it is they're disputing about. He's asking them to focus on their citizenship, that they belong to the Lord. He, he doesn't say that there's something illegitimate about the disagreement or that, that there isn't you know, some genuine, I don't know, different positions or something, but he's saying your disagreement is causing problems in the church. So settle it. Two ladies with different opinions on something of some significance. It's got to be important because Paul in prison notices it. He's chained to somebody and he's heard that something is going on, something of some significance, but he tells them to lay it down, to end the argument. Why? First, now go to that next verse. Yeah, the next slide, rather. Um, he says, first, because you partnered with me, right? They worked hard with me in telling others the good news, which this is kind of like a side note about your opinions of women in the church. Paul's saying like, hey, thanks for sharing the gospel with me and doing our partnership here. Like they had an important, significant role in the life of the church. He's saying, remember when you were working on a shared mission together? When you were moving forward towards something together? Remember that you are on this partnership, bigger picture story. And second, 
your names are written in the book of life. He's saying, even though this issue is important, even though there's some significance to it, it's getting in the way of the gospel advancing. It's getting in the way of us building the kingdom of God and living as citizens of heaven. So settle it. Stop arguing. If, If you want joy, if you want that kind of stability to make it back under air cover, right, to get to the far shores, if, if you want that kind of joy, you must make Jesus and his kingdom the big thing in your life. It must be the big cause. That is how citizens of heaven live. Our great cause is to know Jesus, be known by Jesus, become like Jesus, and build the kingdom of Jesus. A cause that is bigger than our politics, that's bigger than I don't know. I'm so tired of preaching and being nervous about who's going to be mad at me this week because somebody's mad at me every week. And I just want you guys to know, like, I'm trying really hard. I feel constrained by what is in here. And then I look at what's going on around us. And so I mutual discomfort, right, for everybody. So, like, there has to be a cause that's bigger than whether or not we're going to wear masks in public. There has to be a cause that's bigger than our education, that's, that's bigger than our necessarily which political platform that we're going to get behind. Like, when it comes to politics, if we're straight ticket on anything, I think we've been captivated. The, the kingdom of God transcends political parties. It, it isn't just one or the other. Knowing Jesus has to become a bigger cause than all of these issues that we're facing right now. Too many of us, I think, equate joy with an emotional high. I'm certainly there. I became Christian at a summer camp where they had the music just right. The whole thing was built up to an altar call, and they got me, right? They got me, and here I am, 22 years later, still following Jesus. Like, it stuck with me, but I've also wrestled for 22 years now of equating that emotional high with being, you know, on fire for Jesus. That means you're a good Christian. That means you're doing it right. And, and when we think that, when, when joy becomes about the emotional high, I think we equate, we equate being a Christian or joy in the big places of our life. We're gravitating towards the big issues, and we neglect the small ones right in front of us, which is so stunning to see where does Paul bring the biggest truth to bear in the smallest places, a friendship within a local church. We, as the people of God, need to begin to see joy less as this emotional high experience and more as stability as being well-constructed, consistency, real power, power to navigate the swells and the icy winds of a treacherous life. Joy comes to bear in small places like your disagreements in the church. That's where we begin, big truths applied to the ordinary places in our lives. This brings the great stabilizing power of the gospel to your life. If you want Jesus and his kingdom more than anything else, I promise you, so many of your disputes will fall away. The name-calling, the unfair assessments, the assigning of motives, all the stuff that is just rampant in the church right now, not just our church. I see it all over the place. So, again, to step back a little bit, all this is very complicated, so we're being a bit abstract so you guys can figure out what does this look like in your, in your real everyday lives. The principle is, joy comes as Jesus transforms the ordinary places in our lives. Joy comes as we apply the realities, the announcement of the gospel. We apply that in the small, ordinary aspects of our lives. Start there. 
Be, be faithful there. Don't fix world economics when you don't have a personal budget. It seems pretty straightforward. Those kinds of ideas start with your real, ordinary life. And Paul goes on to give us an exceedingly simple way that we begin to do this. So in, in verses 4 through 5, he says, Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. So settle your conflicts. Move into a larger story. Remember your partnership in the gospel. Your name is written in the book of life. How do we do this? How do we get practical? He says, rejoice always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Move beyond your pettiness. Settle the conflict by rejoicing. And listen, I would totally understand if some of you are tempted to say, but look at everything that's going on around me. Look at what's going on in my family. Look at what's going on with my job. Look what's going on with... I, I'm not going to try to talk to anybody out of thinking that your circumstances are anxious or uncertain right now. But that's why Paul begins chapter 4 with that big therefore. Because you're citizens of heaven and you will be raised, rejoice. And watch how this plays out. Think of rejoicing as joy in action. The, the verb behind joy is rejoicing. That can only happen when the kingdom of heaven is the big thing in your life. When, when the kingdom of heaven is the cause that you are rallying behind. How, watch how this happens. So, all right, bring it back up, Connor. This is my favorite word in Philippians, I think. See that word right there, the third line, consider it? This is so cool. You may not think it's cool, it's okay, but maybe this will give you a window on what I do for hours of my week studying simple words. Uh, so considerate means, you know, what it means in English. It's a familiar word to us. But that was written in Greek, and there's just some things that Greek does that English cannot do. If you've ever studied a foreign language, there's rarely like a one-to-one -one concept or correspondence to everything. And that word considerate, uh, no one knows how to translate it. There is no English equivalent for that word. It's, to put it another way, it's untranslatable. That doesn't mean don't trust your English Bible. It just means there's things that English cannot do that Greek can do. So if you pull the Bible out in front of you or you get a different Bible translation out on your phone, there's several different ways that that word considerate gets translated. The, the idea, the, I think what it essentially means is radically even-tempered. Be radically even-tempered unexpectedly even-tempered. Those are kind of weird words to put together. Be radically even. So what that's saying is don't get too high or don't get too low. Here's what this looks like with joy. Joy makes the best times of your life leavable and the worst times of your life bearable. So when, when you get the thing you want, the mature, joy-filled Christian can say, thankful for this, I will enjoy this, but this isn't all there is that there is more than this. This is not the only thing. This is not my everything. You're able to leave it. Or to put it simply, when, when the kingdom of heaven is the big cause of your life, you can live without everything else. Now, when, when tragedy strikes, when circumstances are overwhelming, which will inevitably happen to everybody's life, the mature, joy-filled Christian can say, thank you, God, that I will be raised, that you are with me. Comfort me. Give, give me strength. Regular gratitude becomes one of the primary ways we apply the big truths of the gospel to the small places in our lives. Regular gratitude reminds you that God is the best part of your life. The presence of Jesus is the greatest gift in your life. If there's somebody in your life that 
is aggravating to you or is always bitter and angry, I bet if you follow them around, you'll notice they're not thankful for much of anything. And they can't see hardly anything to be thankful for. Regular gratitude will remind you that God is still with you, even when all seems lost. And the more you experience the presence of God in the highs and lows of life, the more you will experience joy, the more you will desire joy. He will become your favorite thing. And you'll lay down preferences and arguments that get in the way of that. It's, it's just as, sim- it's as simple as that. Too many of us in the church, in the broader Protestant church in America, too many of us have allowed the issues of the day to steal our joy, to come in and rob it. We've drawn lines in the church, especially on social media. Uh, and so I would just encourage you guys to go home and review this passage again and think about what this looks like in your life and the circumstances you're facing. These are ladies arguing over something important, but it is not central. It is not essential. Well, how do I know it's not essential? Because Paul doesn't land on, this, on the side. He doesn't say, Euodia is right, Schenectady, so get over it. He, he doesn't pick a side which means this must not be a moral issue. This must not be a theological essential issue. Otherwise, Paul would say what the right or wrong answer is. He, he does this other places in his letters, other places in his life. So he is saying there are understandable positions here, but get over it. This is not an essential issue. Radical even-temperedness on non-essential issues is what Paul is arguing for here, what he's pleading towards here. That's the road to joy. Regular gratitude producing radically even tempers. Now, what's so frustrating to me is that, at least it, it appears this way to me, I don't claim to have a perfect grasp on reality, Everything, one of the byproducts of this gospel-centered movement that's come out about in the last 20 or 30 years is everything has become a gospel issue now. Uh, And what that means is our preferences become core doctrines to the Christian faith. And if you disagree with me on it, this becomes particularly problematic when we've reduced the gospel to mean only the forgiveness of sins. So what is the gospel? It's only the forgiveness of sins. It has nothing to do with the fact that Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God is at hand or he sent whatever. When we have a reduced gospel that becomes the center of everything, then we become so rigid and everything becomes a matter of most importance. So we're going to have gospel-centered education. We're going to have gospel-centered clothing. We're going to have gospel-centered music. We're going to have gospel-centered books. And, and, and you realize, like, if you don't want to do that or if you don't want to listen to that, well, then you've abandoned the gospel. And when someone disagrees with us as a church now, it's no longer, I'm not sure what I agree about that. It's you've abandoned the gospel. And... It just feels crazy to me because we have poorly defined what is the gospel and what is an essential issue. If everything is essential, nothing is essential. Some of us grew up in rigid places where everything was essential. The color of the carpet was a core doctrine. The music was a core doctrine. The instrumentation was a core doctrine. And so maybe some of you are like, well, how do I know? How do I know what's essential and what isn't? What what is worth fighting over and, and what isn't? So just a quick test to give you. And I'm not saying it's a perfect test. This is just one you can do relatively easy on your own. Uh, So first is to memorize the Apostles' Creed. If you've never heard of the Apostles' Creed before, it's a summary of the core doctrines of the Christian faith that was put together by the church fathers a long, 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 long time ago. Uh, You can find it online. It's in the Sojourn Collective app. Memorize the Apostles' Creed. And then when you're faced with an issue, 
when you're confronted with it, ask yourself, does this contradict the Apostles' Creed? Does this disagree with the Apostles' Creed? And if it doesn't disagree with the Apostles' Creed, or the Apostles' Creed doesn't even speak to it at all, it's probably a non-essential issue. And it, like with these ladies here, it can be an important issue. Is the education of our children important? Yes. It's a big deal. Are politics important? Yes. Very big deal. Is your nutrition important? Yes. All of these things are important. And there's, le- there's legitimate reasons to argue for paleo. And there's legitimate reasons to argue for, for carnivore diets. There's legitimate reasons to argue for private schooling. Legitimate reasons to argue for Montessori and homeschooling and public schooling. And you know what? The Bible doesn't give you an answer on any of those. The Democrats have really good points in some places. The Republicans have really good points in some places. But the Bible does not prescribe who we're to vote for, which party we're to vote for. And so we have to become a people that can look at an issue and say, does is this an essential issue? And I'm I'm saying if it doesn't disagree with the Apostles' Creed, it's probably not an essential issue. If it's not contradicting something in the Apostles' Creed, it's probably not an essential issue. Now, I'm not asking you to stop caring about other important things like education or politics or health or any of these other... I'm not asking you not care about it. I'm not asking you not have an opinion about it. I'm not asking you to not have a perspective about it. I'm just asking you to not allow your opinions and preferences to divide the church. As we judge people's hearts, which, listen, Jesus says we're allowed to judge the actions of people. That is an evil action. That is a sinful action. But he says we are not to judge the hearts of people. So we don't step back and say, That guy is evil for doing that. That lady is an evil human. That's not for us to decide. We don't know their hearts. And we're sitting back here throwing accusations at people's hearts, at people's motives, and the world is watching Christians attack each other over non-essential issues. If you want to know what the threat to the gospel is, it's Christians dividing churches over non-essential issues. It's brokenness from within. And it's all evidence that something else is the big thing in our lives when we're willing to divide and fight over non-essential issues. And when something else is the big thing in our lives, like education is not a bad thing. When education becomes the big thing, the most important thing, it will become a destructive thing because we will divide and destroy one another over a non-essential issue. When something else becomes the big thing in our life, it's no wonder that we worry so much and we have so little power in our lives. And it's in the brilliance of the apostle here, he makes a connection between that kind of fighting and our worry and our anxiety. So he begins winding down and he's getting more and more practical. We're almost to the end of the whole book. In verses six through seven, he's this super famous verse. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he's done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Let's do this. Uh, yeah, man, you, you read my mind, Connor. You knew exactly where I was going. Okay, so what is worry? Don't worry about anything. Anybody worried about something in the last six months? Y'all amended earlier. So here's my pastoral advice to you in light of the Bible. Stop. Have you tried just not worrying? You know, like if, if that verse means what it looks like it means to us here reading it in English, we're all in trouble. 
Have you considered just not worrying about all the things you've been worrying about? This isn't talking about the emotion of fear or the emotion of anxiety. As far as I can tell, I get no say in that. Uh, I've been laying in bed after a wonderful day with my family, and suddenly I feel like I'm about to have a panic attack. And I'm like, what am I worried about? I don't know. I didn't vote for this feeling. I didn't choose it. I don't know where it came from. So it's, it's not so much, I think, this is an invitation into a life where you're never afraid again, or you never experience fear again. Let's think about worry for a second. You got to see how Paul is making a connection between joy and worry here. Uh, worry is a joy thief. If joy is the great stabilizer of the Christian life, worry is the destabilizer of the Christian life. So what is it? The, the word there, it means to meditate on something. Other places in the Bible, it'll be translated as meditate or to be overly burdened with concern. What does it mean to be overly burdened? There's an ongoing aspect of this word. To put it in our common language, I would say worry is chewing on the fat of fear. You ever try to chew on a piece of fat? It's like gross-tasting gum. You're just like... (laughs) And some of y'all know exactly what I mean. There's something you're afraid of, and what do you do? (laughs) You sit there laying in bed, running every scenario. Well, if she says this to me, then I'm going to say that to her. And I know when I say that to her, she's going to say this to me. And if she says that to me, then I'm going to do this. But once I do that, then they're going to do this. And you're up at 3 o'clock in the morning because you've spun through every scenario. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Worry is when you let fear take you to a place of unending meditation on what if. Just running it over and over and over. Paul is saying, stop fretting, y'all. Stop working it out. Instead of worrying about every scenario, start praying about every scenario. And look what what comes next. Uh, Well, you see, hang on, I went too fast. Sorry, I'm a little ripped on coffee. You see the connection again here between joy, worry, and then gratitude? Just tell God everything you need and thank him for it. Next, next slide. And what's the third word? Then you will. Notice he doesn't say, then maybe you'll experience God's peace. You might have a shot. It's a promise. You, you will. If you, if you do this, you will experience God's peace. Not just have interesting things about it. Not just, well, my pastor said in the Greek, experience means. it's No, you will experience it. You will participate in it. So you got to see There's a connection. Joy, worry, gratitude, experience. These are all leading into one another. If you want joy, here's how you pray. When Jesus is the big thing in your life, here's how you pray. Lord, I want this. Notice it doesn't say stop wanting stuff. It says ask him for whatever you need. Ask him for that house. Ask him for that relationship. Ask him for that child. Whatever it is you need, ask him. And then, Lord, I thank you for however you'll respond to that, because I thank you for all you've done for me. Praying this way, I want this, thank you for however you choose to respond to it. Praying this way reorients your eyes to see the world through the lens of God's wisdom, through the lens of God's divine love. And it's a humble prayer because, listen, in my house, is it okay we're going a little bit long? I'm going to go a little bit long here. I'm going to wound up. Are you all okay? We're all still here for a second. Eric's still here. Y'all leave if you want. I'm not going anywhere. I got to pick up some wicker chairs after this. Uh, my kids, we have a conversation every night that goes something like this. Dad, can we have dessert? I'm like, I don't know. What do you want? He's like, I think maybe I have a scoop of ice cream with whipped cream on it and with chocolate sauce and then hot chocolate and popcorn and maybe a lollipop and then two pieces of candy because we're still rationing the Halloween candy. And if my kids, if my kids had their way, 
they would eat that for every meal, every day. I'm thankful that they trust me enough that they ask me for it every day. But what would happen if those kids got what they wanted? Diabetes, for one, uh, all manners of unhealth. Like, to pray this way, God, this is what I want, and I thank you for however you respond, is an awareness that you don't always know what's in your best interest. Some of y'all are old enough to have really wanted something and got it, and it was a huge mistake. It, it was a huge, like, anybody ever make, don't raise your hand, this is embarrassing for somebody, make an emotional car purchase? You, you got in there and you're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, it's silver. It's houndstooth silver, and it's got the special edition seats. And then you got home in month two, you're in that $600 obnoxious car payment or whatever. You know what I mean? I got the, praying this way is acknowledging, I don't know what's in my best interest. I want this, but I trust you, God, that you are wisely leading the universe. It, it means what you're asking for may not be in your best interest. So you're thanking God that he cares for you better than you care for you. And I get I get that this is maybe a different way of praying, or the idea of praying sounds intimidating to you. Historically in the church, we learned to pray by being together, praying in the church on Sundays, praying together, gathered. It wasn't meant to be like, go to your prayer closet alone and figure out how to pray. And so since this all started, since like February, all this meaning coronavirus, COVID-19, we've been praying together five days a week on Facebook Live, 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and we're teaching you how to pray to experience the presence of God, not just to ask him for stuff. And if you can't make it, it lasts 15 to 20 minutes. If you can't make it, it's recorded and it's on there permanently. Join that and learn how to pray. I guarantee you, if you pray this way, you will experience the peace and presence of God in your life, which will settle your soul, not your circumstances. The peace and presence of God will settle your soul. So the first discipline would be to pray for the presence of God. And then the second is more about discovering the presence of God. We're almost done. Verse 8. Fix your eyes, he says. Fix your thoughts, rather, on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely. Paul's ripped on coffee here. You hear him saying the word, like, it's true and it's honorable and it's right and it's lovely. And, and then he says, whatever's praiseworthy. You know, this speaks to the core values of our church. Our core values as a church are truth, beauty, and goodness. He's saying what, whatever is lovely, whatever is good, fix your eyes there. Do you notice what happens when an issue consumes you? how all of a sudden you see evidence of it everywhere. This is what's happened with the gospel-centered movement. We've reduced the gospel to mean the forgiveness of sins, and now everything becomes a threat to the gospel. And so we find that issue everywhere. When you're consumed by politics, how everything becomes an issue. With whatever party you are on, on, on the right, everything becomes an issue of your free, independent, your personal liberty, which I just don't know how you square personal freedoms with the invitation of Jesus to come and die. That should be an uncomfortable tension for my people on the right. And on the left, it's hard for me to square, you know, like, don't kill people, whether they're born or not born. And so we occupy this, this uncomfortable middle ground, right? And when politics becomes the big thing, if you notice how it just becomes an everything issue, and let's take it on less of a hot button issue. Maybe you struggle with feeling unloved and underappreciated. Have you ever noticed, if that's you, how you can interpret every scenario into evidence that you are unloved and underappreciated? When worry consumes us, we find it everywhere. And Paul is saying, step back and lift your eyes up. Cultivate a heart of gratitude and fix your eyes on what is good and true and beautiful because there you will find the presence of God. You could summarize these two by saying, practice the presence of God. 
Make it your aim not to get your person in office, not to change your circumstances. Make it your aim to experience the presence of Jesus, to be known by him, to make him known, to build his kingdom. I'm not asking you to ignore what's worrisome or to pretend like there isn't anything troubling in the world. Of course there is. I'm not asking you to stop caring about things. We acknowledge them and we cast our cares on the Lord and we focus on what is good, true, and beautiful in this life. I promise you, this will transform you. If you, if you learn to deliberately focus on what is good and true and beautiful in your life, particularly when you are anxious, it will transform you. And then the promise at the very end, verse 9, then the God of peace will be with you. Not maybe, not might. You want to experience the presence of God? Pray this way, focus your attention this way, and watch what happens. Joy is found as we practice the presence of God. Put these disciplines to action. Don't get too high, don't get too low. We will find stability for our souls, even when enemies attack, even when the icy North Atlantic winds assail our souls. We will find joy amidst circumstances of suffering because we will be in the presence of the God of peace and filled with a patient hope. The presence of God makes us a well-constructed people and more so reminds us that we have a good captain who will lead us to safe waters. This is what we rehearse and remember and experience every week when we come to the Lord's Supper. This is not just a confession. It's a participation in a mystery together. We, we remember the night Jesus was betrayed. He took a loaf of bread. He thanked God for it. He broke it. And he looked to his disciples and said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. When the meal was over, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant which seals your relationship with God, sealed by the shedding of my blood. Drink this as often as you gather in remembrance of me. So here's what we're remembering. Christ's body was given for us. His blood was shed for us, which means we are forgiven, which means we are safe, which means we are citizens of heaven and we will be raised and perfected. And all of this is secured, not because of your perfect faith, not because of how you've overcome anxiety, but because the blood of Jesus was shed for you. And so we get to experience this together by taking, eating, tasting, drinking, and this becomes who we are. So when you came in, you should have grabbed a communion cup I invite you to grab one of these if you need one. There's some in the basket on top of the sound booth or you can grab one on your way out. Open it and grab this little lifeless, tasteless wafer. <laughs> you know, one day we'll get back to the good stuff. Uh, and, and turn your imaginations on as you eat this. And remember the body of Christ was given for you. Take and eat and remember he's with you. With all of your worries and uncertainty, look to this juice and remember the blood of Christ was shed for you, which seals your relationship with God. Take and drink and remember how loved you are by God. And so now we will respond. We respond by giving God our lives, our love, our affections. You can respond here in just a moment by singing on your way out. They'll be giving buckets or boxes rather, if you want to drop off a tithe or offering, or you can give online. Um, I'll pray for us and then we will stand and respond through singing and giving. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.